humility today, five through 11. As we talk about the joy of humility today, talk about the joy of humility, uh, I, I could probably preach, uh, I don't know, months, several months on this one passage of scripture. Um, so obviously, like many times I'm challenged with, you know, what do I, what do I really want to communicate today? Just if we're going to look at this one time, which we are, we're not going to spend any more time than, than today on this passage of scripture. You know, what is it communicating and what do I want to drive home? What's the main point of the message? And it's obviously the joy of, of humility. Now, if you look at Philippians chapter 2, Paul is, is, again, he's writing from prison. He's writing to his friends and church family and those that he knows and loves in Philippi, a church that he had a hand in uh, planting and starting. And he goes into this, uh, uh, this monologue, if you will, about what we talked about over, you know, last week was about the, about the joy of unity and talking about, you know, considering others more important than yourselves and having the mind of Christ and striving together as the body of Christ, promoting unity in the body of Christ. And then he, then he kind of shifts a little bit into emphasizing from unity. He's emphasizing what I think is probably one of the greatest keys to maintaining and achieving unity in any relationship, much less a complex uh, dynamic of what we call the local church, is that he says the key in maintaining unity, if that's what we're striving for, we're striving for peace and unity, the key to achieving that is for God's people to exercise what? Humility. Humility. Um, it's always been fascinating, I guess, maybe is the word for me. I don't know if that's, if that's the best word I could use. Um, but I'll use it. Fascinating to me that, for me personally, I don't want to speak for anyone else, but for me personally, um, my number one, probably my number one struggle in life is pride. It is. Uh, I never wanted to admit it until I got married and God gave me a wonderful wife to let me know that, uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Once you get married, all everything comes out, right? You, you know, you, they know who you really are, right? Um, but no, it's, uh, pride is just, it's like this, and, and, and we're, we fight against it, and, and we're born into this world with this, this irrational or this unreasonable sense of self-entitlement and self-preservation and all of those things. So I know it's something that we all probably, on some level and some extent, we're all going to wrestle with and deal with and struggle with pride. And it's always been fascinating to me to look at the life of Jesus Christ. Because in him, in Christ, and we're going to see this here very full, full and clear in just a moment. Uh, but there is no pride in him. No pride. And I tell you, he has, he has reason to be proud, right? I mean, from, from, from a perspective of who he really is. I mean, I guess if anybody has reason to be braggadocious and always be right, never wrong, it's God. And yet, what do we see in the nature and the character and the person of God, the person of Jesus Christ? 
see humility. And we see the joy that he associated with taking on this humble position, with taking on this humble condition that we call human flesh, that we call humanity. And there was a significant amount of joy that Jesus um, experienced in being obedient to the will of the Father. And it's just, it's just amazing to me. And every time I read this passage, I, do, I just get overwhelmingly convicted of my own pride. And I guess that's something that we have to battle with. Um, I hope that I'm not as proud today as I used to be. Uh, that would be the work of the Holy Spirit, right? But, uh, but still, we, 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 we do struggle, and I, I do struggle. And so I want to find the joy of humility. And I think you do too. And that's what this passage is all about. So let's, let's just read it, and, and then we'll, we'll jump in together with some very, very profound um, principles that I think we can, we can gain from this passage. So from Philippians chapter 2, let's just kick off verse 5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, or by very nature God, some of your translations may say, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Or, in other words, Jesus did not hold on to his divinity, to his deity. Okay, He, he did not count this, because he's equal. He is co-equal with God. We'll see that in a minute. But he didn't count that as something to hold on to. But what did he do? It says, with God, uh, with God a thing to be held on to or to be grasped. But he emptied himself. By taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Critical key right there. In the likeness of men. Okay, of Adam, Adam, mankind. And being found in human form. Okay, so now we have God who is the very nature of form of God. God who is the very form of God. Now he's found in human form. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Which, by the way, is probably the most humiliating way to die. You understand, Jesus was naked on the cross, right? They stripped him naked. Beat him to within an inch of his life. He was not even recognizable. Physically, if you looked at it, you would, just, you would not have recognized his face. And that's where he had to hang to die in front of his, his friends and his family. The most humiliating, excruciating way to die was the way that God chose to die. Unbelievable. He, came, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, okay, it's always, when you see the word therefore, it's there for a reason, right? Therefore, because of the humility of Jesus Christ, because of the obedience of Jesus Christ who took on flesh to be willing to be put and nailed to a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a powerful, powerful now, if you look at any commentary or um, 
you know, any of the uh, scholarly work that's associated around this passage of Scripture, most sc- biblical scholars and most commentators will tell you, and I think that they're probably accurate, that this portion of Scripture very well could have been and probably was an early Christian or early uh, church psalm or hymn. Okay, so in other words, it was, it was a... Um, it was such a profound and essential doctrine that, that was, uh, you know, very concisely and, and um, you know, very uh, well put together to, to communicate who Christ is and, and what he came to do, that they, they began to sing it in the early church. In other words, and it's just like Cameron was saying earlier, you know, that we have the ability to sing as Christians, and that is where many of uh uh, we, we get to learn through singing. We get to memorize things through song. How our mind works with music is amazing. Like you, you probably remember lyrics to songs that you grew up listening to when you were a kid, right? How is that possible? Because something about music kind of just really ingrains these words and thoughts and ideas into our heart and into our mind. And so the early church, like, like, our, uh, like the, the people of Israel in general, they used song and singing as a way to communicate doctrine. And so this was probably an early hymn for the disciples. Uh, and they were probably singing this, and, uh, and so that's, that's interesting to me. And then it's also called the kenosis of Jesus Christ. And when I say kenosis, it's a, it's a Greek term that when you, when you read this passage and when you hear uh, Paul say that Jesus emptied himself, okay, some of your translations may say he made himself nothing. That's one way to look at it. But it's basically that that Jesus, who is God, when he took on human form, he, he emptied himself. He, he humiliated himself in the incarnation by becoming a man. The creator entered into his own what? Creation. He bound himself in that way as a man within his own creation. So that's what this, this kenosis of Jesus Christ is all about, if you've ever uh, studied up on that. Um, as well, so let's just kind of break this down into three different, three basic points today, and I'll, I'll do my best to to keep this within reason. But the first thing I want to share with you today is Jesus is God. Jesus is God Amen. by nature, okay, and He is revealed to us as the express image of the invisible God. Now, I'm not going to sit here and, and go into the intricately, you know, the intricate details about the uh, Trinitarian nature of God and, and what we call the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, how he's both, he's truly God, truly man, all those kind of things. I mean, th- these are things that we have talked about and discussed and debated in theological circles since, since Jesus came, okay? But I just want to give you a kind of a a brief overview about how do the scriptures portray Jesus Christ, okay? And the scriptures clearly portray Jesus Christ as God. He is creator. He is not a created being, which some cults will teach you. So if if you're ever listening to somebody who's trying to teach you that Jesus was created, that God created Jesus and then like as the highest being and then Jesus kind of did everything else, that's a big red flag. Jesus has no end or beginning, just like the Father and the Spirit have no end or, or beginning, right? He, he is by very nature 
God. And then this is what gets very interesting to me, is that we, uh, the Bible is clear that, that no one can see the face of God and live. So when I think about that, okay, well, I'm thinking that's talking about the Father, you know, so full of glory and majesty and supreme just beauty and, and light and fire and and obviously that, that there's some there's some type of a barrier that we that we can't really be in the presence of of, of God and, and live. So so we see throughout all of Scripture where man has interactions with the Lord, okay, but he's in what kind of form? He's in human form. And so even before Jesus was born in the fullness of time, when he actually became that, you know, whatever, however you want to, you know, Mary had 23 chromosomes, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, he, she, the Holy Spirit supplied the other 23 chromosomes, and at that moment there was an embryo that was fused together in her womb that was a man who was also what? God, and he was born. Okay, he was born into the world, all right? So regardless of how you want to look at all that, before that moment happened in, in the fullness of time, we see man interacting with the Lord in many different instances and ways through visions and dreams and sometimes just in, in real life application where they have an encounter with a man, but when they walk away from that encounter with that man, they realize that they have seen the face of God, Okay. What we're talking about, guys, is that if, if, the, if, if we are servants and children of the invisible God, and he is so transcendent, and he is, he is so transcendent beyond anything that we could possibly imagine, we cannot see his face and live, we could not be in his glory and be able to sustain what it would do to us, therefore God has to provide a way to reveal himself to us in a way that we're not consumed, right? And, and that we're not just completely, utterly undone and blown away, and so by his grace and by his mercy, he reveals himself and has revealed himself to us through the form of a man. And that just happens to be God the Son. God the Son, okay? And that's who Jesus Christ truly is. He is God by nature, but he is also the express image of the invisible God. So it is, it is through Christ that God reveals himself. He did it before the incarnation through, through, many, through the angel of the Lord and, and different encounters again. But since the incarnation, he permanently, and I'm not going to hit it myself, but, but when, he, when he became a man, is that that is now the primary and exclusive way, the exclusive means through which we must have relationship with who? With God. The only way you and I can have relationship, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said. Okay, so if we want to behold the Father, we want to have this fellowship with the Father, we want to have a relationship with the Father, it is very clear in Scripture there's only one way to have that, and that is through Yeshua, God's Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Okay? So it's very imperative that we understand Jesus is King, he is creator of everything, both visible and invisible. In the book of Colossians, Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, and that everything was made by him, both visible and invisible. Now, let me tell you what that means. That means the physical realm and domain of this earth was made by who? By Jesus. But there's also a 
heavenly realm that consists of a highly organized kingdom with all kinds of sentient beings. We call them angels, but that's a very general term. There's so many different types of angelic beings, heavenly beings, some good, some what? Some bad. It, we, we, are very, we should not limit our view of this angelic realm, this heavenly realm, but the thing I'm trying to get across to you today is that not only did Jesus create the physical realm that we can see and that we live in, we participate in, but he also created what? The heavenly realm. So any angel or heavenly being that has its existence, it has its existence in Christ. He is the originator. He's the creator of all things visible and what? And invisible. All things were made by him and for him and through him and in everything holds together in him. So he is creator. Now, in John 1.18, it's an interesting uh, statement that, that John makes. And, and I think this kind of goes along with what I'm saying with you today. Listen to what it says. So John is writing, he's saying, the word became flesh. Isn't that what we just read? The Word, Jesus, the, the, the eternal Son of God, became flesh. He dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18, John 1:18, listen to what uh, John says. No one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side. Okay, did y'all see? Did y'all just catch that? No one's ever seen God. But the only God is right by his what? So who is God, the Father or the Son? Both. And then we also see the Holy Spirit operating and being identified also as, as God. So again, we're talking about a very complex being, a, 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 a higher dimensional being that exists in, in the capacity of, of, of being one God who exists also in three distinct personalities. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. They are all completely equal in essence and nature and will and power and eternality and immutability. In every characteristic and attribute, they are all equal. Okay? And yet they are distinct from one another. It's a, it's a fascinating con concept. And I, again, I can't get into all the details about trying to explain the Trinity because the more I try to explain it, the more I just don't what? I don't fully understand it. It is, a, it is amazing, okay? So that's okay. I'm okay with believing in a God that I can't fully what? Understand or comprehend. If I could fully understand and comprehend everything about the nature of God, then that means I would be who? I would be God, and I, I'm not God. Got it? But, but no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Has made him known. Now we're talking about Jesus. So again, he is the creator. And let me just share with you a couple of key passages. Look, look at Hebrews 1 real quick. Let's do a little flipping this morning. Hebrews 1. Just going to give you a couple of verses. Listen to what Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. How did God speak to the fathers, by the way? Through Jesus. Through the incarnate Jesus, who came to them in human form primarily, okay? But it says, God spoke to the fa our fathers, the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So who's the creator? Jesus. 
He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Again, that picture that Jesus is both king of heaven and of earth, right? He's, more, he's been exalted above all. That's Hebrews 1. And so we see that in the, in the person of Jesus Christ, we have a very complex individual. He is, he is God, but he is fully, he is truly man. And I like using those terms. He's truly God, but he's also truly what? Truly man, okay? And so we, we, we affirm the deity of Jesus Christ. Number two. We also affirm the humanity of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus perfectly submitted to the Father's will when he humbly, he, was, he, he humbled himself in human form. He humbled himself in human form. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, fascinating. Look at what Paul says in, in Philippians 2. He says, even though he's God, he's in the very nature of God, he did not hold on to that position, right? But he emptied himself. He, he, he took on the form of a servant. And he was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on a cross. As I said before, it is amazing to me that God is the most humble being in the entire universe. Think about that for just a second. Let me, let me read something to you. I'm just going to go to Isaiah 14. Just, you don't have to turn there. I just want to read something to you. Isaiah 14, kind of an enigmatic passage about who I believe is, is referencing to Satan or the devil, the serpent, whatever you want to call him. Listen to what, how it speaks of this, of this entity. Well, let's just call it this is the devil. I believe it is a, an interpretation of who Satan is. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Now listen. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the, assembly, the mountain of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most you see, the biggest difference between Satan, our adversary, the devil, and Jesus, our Savior, is that Satan's number one characteristic and quality is what? Pride. You sense it in the defiant, I will. Who's going to stop me? I'm the most beautiful and wisest and the, the seal of perfection is what the scriptures speak of Satan. He, he, was, he, was, he was definitely an impressive, he's an impressive being. But his pride caused iniquity, iniquity to be found in his heart where he said, I will defy God, I will ascend. Now, go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus makes an I will statement too. As he's agonizing over going to the cross and he's sweating drips of, drips of blood. He says, Father, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. But not my will be done, 
thy will be done. See the difference? That's the difference. And what we have to understand is that it is the, in the humility of Jesus Christ that makes him unique above and beyond any other creature, any other being in this universe. Obviously as God who became flesh to demonstrate his willingness to humble himself. Now, here's something I want you guys to, to hang on to. This, this is something that we need. This is good theology, okay? Listen to me. When Jesus took on flesh, when he developed as a, as a fetus in his mother's womb, and when he was born into this world, he was born a man, truly man. But here's what's interesting. He is permanently man. Right now, at the right hand of our Father in heaven, in the third heaven, whatever that is, this paradise of God, this, this holy city, Jerusalem, in the, uh, in the spiritual realm. Right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father is a man. What's his name? Jesus. There is a man on the throne of heaven. There's coming a day... When that very same man who the scriptures tell us has been exalted above every name that has been named in heaven and on earth and even under the, and under the earth. You see, there's a day when that man is coming back to take his rightful throne where? On this earth. He's ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father in heaven right now, but is yet to be completed where he has taken his rightful place as the son of man, the one who is coming to reign and rule from his throne in Jerusalem on this earth. That's what the whole battle of Armageddon and the end of days is all about, guys. It's about Jesus taking his rightful place on his what? On his throne. As a what? As a man. We, dominion, listen to me. Our birthright as human beings is this earth. God said, you get the what? This is our, this is our world. This is where we get to rule and reign and... and create and, and represent God to the fullest of our extent. We hadn't done a very good job of it. How, nonetheless, this is our domain, right? Jesus, as a man, is the one who has the right to rule on the what? Nobody else has the right to rule on the earth except mankind. That's why it's so important that Jesus became a man so that he could save man, so that he could save and redeem us ultimately. Now, turn to Hebrews 2 real quick. Back to Hebrews because it's a very, very, uh, very powerful book. But I just want, I want to give you another kind of another glimpse into this idea that Jesus, the significance about Jesus taking on human form, becoming a man. Again, we're talking about God, the creator who entered into his creation in limited form. Limited to him in the sense that he, he bound himself in human flesh and human form under the laws of physics. Uh, you know, I mean, he, he performed miracles. We know he was, he was a unique man, nonetheless, but he was still a man. He got hungry. He got dirty. He had to take a bath. And he was a man, right? Okay. Hebrews 2. Look at verse... Let's see. Look at verse 14. Hebrews 2, 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, now that's, he's talking about us, humanity. Since we're flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Why did Jesus become a man? By and large, so that he could what? 
he could die. How does God die? He has to take on what? Human form. He had to have blood coursing through his veins. He, he literally died. Physically, he, he died on the day that he was nailed to the cross. Look at what it says. And he delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Again, we're no longer slaves to fear. But surely it is not angels that he helps. Pause for a second. Listen to me. Remember that heavenly realm I was just telling you about? This heavenly kingdom, this, this manifest uh, world that we're not privy to, that we really don't know a whole lot about. We just kind of get glimpses about what's going on with all of these angelic beings, heavenly beings, good, bad. There's a massive civilization and kingdom out there, guys, that we just, we just don't know a whole lot about, okay? Listen to me. Jesus did not take on angelic form. He did not permanently become an angel. That's a significant because the angelic world is fascinated with humankind for a lot of different reasons. But one of the main reasons the angelic, the heavenly beings, they long to look into the things that are happening in our world because who became a man? Jesus. God became a man. And they're, they're stepping back and looking at it and say, whoa, wait a minute. He took on human form? There's something really special about humanity. Really special that God would be permanently become what? Man, human. He didn't become an angel. Matter of fact, we read in scriptures that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels because they have sinned against God without excuse. There is no redemption for them. But we're a bunch of misfits and we're dysfunctional and we're sinful. And God says, there's redemption for you. God gave us a chance to be what? To be saved, to be redeemed even in our sinful condition. When you start thinking about the gospel in those terms, it is amazing to me, but that's what the book author of Hebrews is saying. He says, surely it's not angels that he helps, for he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he has to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It was imperative that God become man so that he could save mankind through his perfection and his righteousness and then eventually through his death and his resurrection from the grave. The, book, the author of Hebrews, again, and I'm not going to go there, but in Hebrews 12, it says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the what? Again, remember last week, we don't usually uh, correlate joy with war. We typically would never correlate joy with being nailed to a what? But the Bible tells us that Jesus considered it what? Joy. To go to endure the cross. Why? Because he knew the end of the story. He knew the cross was just three days removed from the what? Resurrection. And he knew that in his death, in his atoning death and sacrifice, which was the completion of God's redemptive work in glory, is that he would bring many sons to glory through his death, burial, and resurrection. He would expand and, and uh, increase the family of God by multitudes and multitudes, which he has done. And so the, it's, it's kind of like, like a party, right? The more, the, the better. The more, the merrier, right? Jesus is like, I see down the road what this is going to be because I'm going to bring many sons to glory through my death, burial, and resurrection. I'm going to expand the family of God, but I have to go through the cross first. So he considered it joy. Amazing. 
And so when we think about, as I wrap this message up, as we think about what the scripture says about humility, what the scripture says about pride, in that doesn't that make sense now why Jesus went around always talking about he who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. But the pride that God opposes who? God is opposed to the proud. Man, that, that terrifies me. But he who humbles, when we willingly humble ourselves, God will exalt, exalt us at the proper time. Because in our humility is when we are most like Christ. And the last thing, if you want to fill in your blanks, is just kind of gives us a, 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 a synopsis of everything that we've talked about a little bit today. Having satisfied the punishment for sin on the cross, remember he did it for joy. He was raised in glory. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father in the highest place of power and authority in the entire universe. He is son of God in heaven, king of heaven, and he is son of man, king of the what? Of the earth. There's coming a day when Jesus, who has been exalted, he's going to come and bring heaven where? And reunite heaven with earth where both realms will be underneath his rule and reign and authority that's not the case right now our realm is still to a large extent underneath the control of wicked kings human kings who are being influenced and led by principalities and powers of darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places and it's going to end again in jerusalem on the day that jesus comes to make all things new that's what this whole passage really ultimately points us to. He will reconcile all things in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. What's that all about? Just like there's a, a heavenly uh, kingdom, a heavenly realm with all kind of beings that exist in the heavenly realm that we can't really necessarily see, that we only have glimpses of. There's also an organized kingdom of darkness under the earth called Sheol or Hades and there are spirits there and they are wicked and Jesus is God of heaven he's king of kings above the earth the heaven the earth and what and even that what's is under the earth we could go into all kind of details about that as well but in other words it's just trying to help us understand the totality the totality of the rule and reign and the authority and glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I'm going to I'm going to ask our praise team to come up and and you know I know that was a kind of a crash course on a, on Philippians two five through eleven. As I said, guys, I mean there's so many things we could just we could get into so many other details, but I just want you to walk away with one very very simple thing today, okay? I want you to remember this because this is kind of the way I have to remember. I'm never more like that snake than when I'm proud. When we're proud, who are we acting like? The devil. I'm never going to be more like that snake, that, that wicked serpent, than when I'm proud. I'm never going to be more like Jesus than when I'm what? Than when I'm humble. Here's my experience. You ready? God wants us to humble ourselves. You know you can humble yourself, right? 
But if you're like me and you're hard-headed, when I'm not willing to humble myself, somebody's got to do it for me. And I have been humbled. And I, you think, yeah, I've learned that lesson. Sometimes you're like, well, maybe I hadn't learned that lesson. But what my point is this. It's a lot better for you to humble yourself than to have to let God do what? Humble you. Because usually it's through very difficult circumstances or consequences to sin. Because we know that pride always comes before the always comes before the fall. You know, in the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a profound statement. He said, blessed are the meek. Now listen, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the what? The earth. What does he mean? God is preparing a people for himself that is humble. That we're not going to be dictators in the kingdom. We're not going to be proud dictators who use our position of authority and power over people to suppress and oppress them. Which is what Satan and his kings, that's what they do. Jesus is saying, no, I'm trying to prepare for myself a people that understands the power of humility. Because Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to what? But to serve to give my life as a ransom for me. When you have your place of position of authority in the kingdom, it will be for no other reason than to do what? To serve. Not to rule as we think about, I'm in power now, I get to make all the, call all the shots. No, no, Jesus is saying, I'm trying to help you understand the meek, those who have humility under control, they are the ones that will inherit what? God is preparing you and me today for what we get to experience and have in the kingdom to come. So let's begin now humbling ourselves. We don't have to always be right. I'm talking to myself. Don't always have to win the argument. Stay humble. Stay honest. Stay true to God. Listen, and in the proper time, what will he do? He will exalt you. He will exalt you. You don't have to, you don't have to tell everybody how great you are. You just keep faithfully serving God. Stay humble. Love people. Be kind. Be faithful. And in that proper time, God will lift you up. And everybody will know that you were well done, my good and my faithful servant. Amen? Let's all pray together. Father, I just want to thank you for the picture, the example that we see in Jesus, even though he is God, creator of all. He let go of that. He humbled himself. He permanently became a man to identify with us. He is our elder brother. He took on flesh so that that body could be nailed to a cross and his precious blood could be shed onto the ground for us. His life poured out so that he might bring many sons to glory. He did this for the joy that was set before him, that he may see a kingdom of brothers and sisters and sons and daughters, Lord, where we are ruling and reigning with him not because we are lording it over other people, but because we are meek and humble and willing to serve other people. Lord, forgive us of our pride. Help us to remain humble in your hand and trust that in, our, in your proper time, you will exalt us. 
Thank you, Jesus. And it's in your name.